Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tats Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Matt Van Every. He's the CEO at Canopy Weather. So Matt, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, looking forward to being here with uh, you and and having a conversation about all kinds of good stuff. Yeah, when I look at your background, I think a entrepreneur. Would that be a correct assessment? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I, I believe so. It's I, I kind of think if I've got to write a resume, then I probably shouldn't apply. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, when I started a business uh, over 20 years ago, I've had different businesses. It was kind of not as trendy as it is now, right? It's kind of trendy to say entrepreneur, but at least yeah. back when I first started, it was like, oh, you're an entrepreneur. You mean you can't get a job? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, well, yeah. I mean, for me, it was, and I agree with what you said there about it being a trendy thing. I think up until even in the last few months, I mean, it was all about trying to figure out how to raise money and like all this stuff and versus just getting out there and grinding. Like, I, and I think that that got, I think a little bit lost in the entrepreneurship space is a lot of it's just about grinding and trying to figure it out first before asking for a bunch of money. Now that that's all drying up, well, I'm curious to see where the next iteration of entrepreneurship, I mean, now they you go to college for entrepreneurship and I'm like, Mm, I don't think that that's uh, there's a little bit of oxymoronic there. Entrepreneurship is about just getting it figured out. Yeah, I mean that's definitely my favorite. My second favorite is I find it hard to go to school for marketing, especially you know if you want some grasp of the tactical elements to it. They change so quickly. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, especially right now with technology blowing up. I mean, look at ChatGTP. I use it every day for stuff I'm working on and. From a marketing perspective, like that's a great example of how we're about to see massive shifts in the way that the tactics of, you know, if we think about that from email to Facebook advertising to LinkedIn, LinkedIn advertising, all these different tools are changing so dramatically. I mean, SEO optimization was a is a huge thing that changes on a quarterly basis. You know, if you think about that from a marketing perspective, and it's it's all happening so freaking fast that like trying to keep track of it and on top of it is just like a whole job in itself. Yeah, I mean, there's two ways you can approach it. I think you can go head first in trying to chase that. And you got to do that to some extent because you can't get too far behind. And the other one is how do you go in the opposite direction? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it's when they zig, then you should zag kind of scenario, right? Like if if your competitors are doing it, then why are you doing it? There better be a good reason for that. If the whole herd is heading one way, then maybe you want to head in a different way to be different. You know, better is not better. Different is better, if that makes sense. And then the other thing I think about there with regards to marketing, I think the biggest piece what you just mentioned there is like, you know, changing course, but you know, it's different is better. Better is not better. And I think that applies to the construction space in particular, which you and I service that industry to, to from different perspectives. But in any services industry, better is better is not 
as a homeowner or a business owner, like, okay, like that doesn't, that doesn't resonate with me. Like I, I'm the best. Okay. Everybody's the best. Otherwise they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. That's always a challenge to get across. And I think there's more and more content created on the internet, you know, YouTube and, and all kinds of other things, podcasts like this, even there's so much content out there. It's like, how do you separate yourself as a, as a big challenge? Yeah, for sure. We talked about entrepreneurship. Talk to me about some of your earlier ventures. Like you, we can get to your weather, weather venture. Where did you start? What were some of those uh, early projects you got going? Well, I think this is kind of a fun one is it probably started when I was about 14 going on 15. I had always been tinkering. I always liked to tinker and, you know, tear things apart to understand how they worked and that kind of thing. But one of the things I did at from, I don't know, 13, 14, going into 15, as I started off mowing yards. And yeah, hey, congratulations, you're you're getting away from the Nintendo and the and the TV <laughs> and the computer games and all the other stuff that today's generation uh has to deal with. And I had that obviously as well. But so I started off mowing yards. And I remember one hot summer in, in Dallas where I grew up, it was like 106 one day. And I remember two key things about that. And I actually like was super nerdy about it. Like I actually carried a PL statement. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that I had money coming in and I had gas money that had to be saved to get, uh, otherwise I couldn't mow the next yard. Right. And then, you know, I had, you know, uh, the, the lawnmower break and I'll get into that story in a second. So I, I learned very quickly, or, you know, I got to buy weed eater string. Like these are really super small, like trivial things that as, uh, running a big business today is like, you don't even think about that kind of stuff. Right. But, but when you're 14 and figuring this out and you're like, Oh crap, I don't have the six bucks to buy string to go weed eat the next house. It's like, Oh, I better next time think about that. Hey mom, dad, can I get, but I think there's about 106 out. I was freaking hot. And I just finally said, you know what? This is crap. Like I'm going to be retired by the age of 50. And I didn't even know what retire really meant by that. Um, but it's something that had never been spoken in my family or my grandparents, right? Like that's, they worked and worked and worked. And and now what through entrepreneurship, that's now it's 40, it's less than 40. And I just knew that being a, an employee and showing up, you know, nine to five and doing my job and going home and drinking a beer or partying or hanging out or whatever, I knew that that wasn't going to be the place to get me on pace to be retired um, by that age. So I think it naturally drove me just that hot, pissed off 14-year-old, 15-year-old kid when it's 106 degrees said, there's something else out there. And it just dive in and go figure that out. The other thing I, I think in that message, I remember one day the lawnmower broke and we didn't have a lot. My family didn't have a lot of money just laying around to buy new lawnmower. So I remember that was probably the biggest thing that changed the way that I thought it rewired my brain. And as I was, the lawnmower's dead and I'm like walking around pacing the yard, like, okay, I don't have the money for, for a lawnmower. Mom and dad don't have the money for a lawnmower. What am I going to do? So then I I, I kind of walked around the, the block a little bit, trying to figure out what to do. And again, I'm 14, I think I'm early 15, late 14. And 
finally, I was like, well, hold on a second. I got all these customers. I've got my neighbors that are all customers. I'm just going to go to every single one of them. I need to raise like, I don't know how much they cost, three, 400 bucks. So I need, I was like, I'm just going to go to all my customers and say, if they will prepay for the rest of the summer, which would have been like, I don't know, 80 bucks or something. If they prepay for it, I'll give them like two mowings for free, I think is what I did. And so then I was like, well, I'll go try that. And I went and went and knocked on the first customer. Hey, I told them the story. Hey, the lawnmower broke. I need to raise some money so I can do this. If you buy X, I'll give you, you know, two free or whatever. And they're like, sure. And they hand me the cash and then said, don't worry about the free stuff. Just go ahead and take care of things. But I think that there's two messages in that. Get creative. Don't go try to raise a bunch of money. Figure out the problem and your value and get creative on trying to deliver that value and capture that value as well. But if you do that and you do that consistently, like I had for a couple of years at that point of mowing these, these neighbor's yards, they came to trust me. Right. And so if you're, if you're doing, if you do what you say you're going to do when you're going to do it and you have those results, then you earn that trust with not only your team members, but your customers. And, and so the result was before I even came back home to say, Hey, mom, dad, I broke the lawnmower. I already had the cash in the hand to say, can you drive me to the store to wow. go get a new lawnmower? And then they were all freaked out. Like, where the hell does money? Who'd you rob? Did you steal it from? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that that is like the beginning. I know that's a long story, but, but that was the beginning of the change in my mindset. One was a couple of days, weeks before that was this hot pissed off day. And then the other was the lawnmower is broke. What do I do? And so there's a bunch of lessons in that child exercise, if that makes sense. But but you, it's those little things that you build on and with the same intent and the same passion to just get the job done and figure it out. Uh, because one of the things that I've also learned in, in entrepreneurship is you can make all the greatest plans you want. And it's just like war. As soon as you put them in place, you're just going to get punched in the face. And it's totally different. And you got to be able to, you know, adapt and learn and, and be quick and nimble and all those things. But, um, and I think that that was the beginning. So from there, I went to school, University of Oklahoma, I guess, to some degree, I was even in high school, I became a mechanic going back way back. And I, I built high performance race boats from scratch. Wow. That was a lot of fun. That was started in- Was it self-taught? I mean, there wasn't the same amount of online. Yeah. We had a little Votech school that we were allowed to enroll in in high school. And one of the things was uh, a mechanic shop. And I've always been, again, I was always tinkering on stuff. So I was like, yeah, I'll do that. And then quickly became top of the class in terms of knowing all, passing like all the ASE. I was a master certified ASE like by the age of seven, like a year, 18 months into it. I just, I'm naturally have that engineering mindset, if that makes sense. Yeah. But anyway, I got an, an offer to go work for a, just a guy. And uh, he had a little shop that built high performance racing boats, a super niche market. So yeah, I literally started from scratch with him kind of as an apprentice at the age of 16. Did that all the way through college. And I've been 146 miles an hour on water. That's pretty hot. That's pretty fast. Wow. <laughs> it's it's uh, not fun. So I learned a lot about listening to the customer because this is all custom jobs at the time. So what I really learned in that role was, and that was an employee, right? But I 
I learned, listen to the customer. What is the customer saying? What are they saying they want? Those are two different things. And then what's the technical reality of what you can deliver? That's a different thing. And then you have to do that on on time, on budget, deliver with quality. I mean, that these things are $80,000 motors. Like if you don't do it with quality, it's going to blow up and there's 80,000 bucks gone. And so there's a lot of lessons in there about listening to what the customer says they want. What do they really want is different. And then there's the technical deliverables. Can you actually accomplish it on budget, on time? And so there's a lot of lessons there. Yeah, I mean, give, give me an example because I can I can sort of kind of get a sense of it, but just give me an example. What does a customer say, and where do they end up after you're clarifying? Yeah, I mean, and it's been a while. I have to think through that a little bit, but you know, sometimes it could be, um, hey, I want this boat to do 150 miles an hour um, for a poker run out on Lake Texoma, uh, which is out north of Dallas, and oh, but by the way, I want to be able to carry 40 people on it. <laughs> what's the priority <laughs> yeah and i want to fish on the weekends whenever nobody it's like okay so you want all these things in one and and you can accomplish things like that but it's okay what's budget i remember we built one that was really a beautiful boat uh, it had three engines i built 3600 horsepower a piece there's a lot that's three of them and it was a 40 42 foot formula or a fountain. One of the two was the base, the body of the, of the, uh, these cigarette boats. Um, and, uh, and so it would carry about 20 people if you wanted it to, and it would do a hundred plus miles an hour with no problem. (laughs) So, uh, with that many people, but that would be an example. Other things is just like when they come in and say, Hey, the engine's making a funny noise. Like, okay, well, you have to diagnose that. You're doing race boats. You, you've done, you know, you did some other, I think, a distribution business. But how did you end up in weather? Well, I've always been, I think, weather, the analogy for weather for me is um, artists or musicians. I think that people get into the weather industry are highly passionate about weather, just like an artist is or, or a musician. They're highly passionate about something. And so really that that passion probably started for me when I was early on. I've just always loved it, always curious by it. So I went to school at University of Oklahoma for my undergrad, went to school there, made inroads with a couple of professors uh, that were working on building out a network of automated sensors to try to detect these super small scale events, in particular for rainfall. And this is where my ma- my background came in from the uh, mechanics side and uh, as a student in meteorology is like, well, I can build this. Like, I know how to weld. I know how to put together a budget in, on materials. I know, I know electrical engineering, at least at that low level. Like, I can string circuit boards together and wires and all this stuff. I know how to code. And so that really is where it, like, continued to accelerate is that was my sophomore year. And uh, I got to build out this network of automated rain gauges that we are trying to detect without getting too nerdy into it. We are really trying to detect these super small scale rain measurements um, that could be my house to your house or my house to the neighbor's house, right? Just a few hundred yards away. And you can have, we, we had one, I remember one summer. And this this goes into hail eventually. Yeah. And this, uh-huh. is this predicting or is this just you know reporting or understanding the the subtleties? 
Yeah, uh, actual like measurements, not prediction. Yeah. yeah. Um, and understanding like, okay, if there's the weather radar that you see on the on the on the news, right? If you think about that for a second, or some a mobile app or whatever, there's things that are going on below the image of that image that you're seeing, and that's really hard to understand. And we are working on those problems. And I remember one one summer we had a thunderstorm come through. And we had one rain gauge set up that was uh, that measured like six and a half inches of rain in an hour, like flood flood level rainfall, and literally three hundred yards away, two hundred, uh, yeah, about two hundred fifty yards away, um, no rain at all, and it was not an error. There was literally no rain versus six inches, in in the span of basically two houses, three houses in a neighborhood. Uh, and to the radar, you could, it couldn't distinguish, the weather radar was too pixelated, if you will. There wasn't enough data at that level of resolution to resolve that. Um, so we were trying to figure that kind of stuff out. Are those borders consistent uh, in some cases or just, you know, it, it fluctuates? Yeah, I'm just I mean, wondering if like you got, you know, you're the house that got screwed, right? You're just on this border. Or yeah. is it just there's some enough variance to that? Oh man, there's there's variance to it. I think to some degree, if we've all paid attention, um at some point we've seen a line in the sand, if you will, where it's rain and no rain. How many times are we driving down the highway and we're like, oh, there's a storm coming and it's you're going along, and then all of a sudden <laughs> It just hits your windshield, right? Like that happens naturally all the time. You know, the 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 spread on that can can vary pretty widely. The six inches versus zero was, I mean, that was another level of event, but <laughs> but that shows that it exists. So I continued that journey a little bit. I actually applied and became a NOAA scholarship recipient, and that was an amazing opportunity where I got to work with. Uh, some of the best scientists in the field and, and apprentice underneath them. So that's where I really got to went ahead and focused and continued that course on, on precipitation and flood and stuff like that. And got to learn code and all kinds of stuff. I learned very quickly what I don't like in life. And I mean, at that time, were you, was it just like you said, art, a hobby or were you, were you, is your mind going towards entrepreneurship? Oh, it was still very much entrepreneurship. I, I learned in that process, I volunteered for the National Weather Service. I learned very quickly that looking at data all day and trying to make forecasts of what's going on wasn't for me. I learned that I needed to have an application, a problem that is really being solved. And I knew, again, going back to this idea of retirement from when I was 14, I knew that I had to find the pain point that it was solving and then create a product that would solve that pain point and, and generate revenue, meaningful revenue. And so I, I knew that that was always the path. And I knew that for me, staying in academic, you know, getting a master's PhD, that route wasn't for me because it was too um, theoretical and not application. You couldn't apply that kind of stuff in, in a meaningful way. Yeah. So I, after graduating, I started up a company well, I first applied to a weather company, which I won't, a couple of them that I won't mention by name, but I think I got job offers of like 18,000 was my first job offer a year. Another one was 24,000 a year. And I had to sign a three-year contract, couldn't even afford rent at that amount. And I was just like, 
what the hell did I just spend four years like 24,000 bucks? Like I can do anything and make that. I was doing making that mowing yards at 14. Like, <laughs> like what am I doing? And um, so I, I got out of the weather space and went back to the mechanic side. I moved back to Dallas. And uh, at the time, this would have been 08, 09. So the, the great recession hit toys were gone. So this, this going back to building high performance race boats was out of the question. Nobody had the money for it. Toys get killed pretty quickly whenever the market is dead. And so I was looking around the shop and I was just like, the, the battery guy comes in and replaces the battery and, and he, and we cut him a check to like drop off and change all our batteries in the shop. And I was just like, here I am twiddling my thumbs because there's nothing to do. And this dude, we just cut a freaking check for him to just come and change out some batteries. I was just like, well, I can do that. So I created a company. And again, this gets back to that marketing piece. Different is better. And I looked around and I was like, well, okay, I could go, you know, get BG chemicals or Valvoline chemicals, but then everybody has access to that anyway. So why would I just go do the same? Uh, so I started to source environmentally friendly products, things that were not mainstream and were against the status quo of all these harsh chemicals that I worked with every day as a, as a mechanic. And so I created a company, it was called Ecomotives. And uh, the idea was to source these environmentally friendly, that used to be harsh, harsh chemicals and work with um, dealerships and, and body shops and all these things. And there's some phenomenal products out there, by the way that are very environmentally friendly and work better than the big brand chemical companies. You probably in, in your products that you you run have experienced the same with, with uh, yeah. roofing products. Yeah, lots um, of potentials, you know, yeah. in our yeah. technology and others. Yep, completely. So that, that was a whole nother, you know, I, that was, I had very little cash on hand. I probably at the time had maybe 600 bucks in my bank account. I mean, I just right out of school and figured it out. I learned so much in that. I learned how to, how to uh, cold call. I had to figure it out. I had 600 bucks. I was sleeping on the couch of, of my friend, uh, one of my best friend's house for a couple months to, to figure it out. Cold calling, just walking in and just having a conversation, trying to figure out who the gatekeeper is and how to get around the gatekeeper because they're everywhere. Everyone who wants to have a job just to, just to, hold the gate for whatever reason. Inventory in the construction space, inventory is a pain in the butt. And, and, you know, then you learn about margins because if you don't make enough margin, then you don't have enough to pay for the next set of inventory and you're dead, which built on that, those early lessons as a kid doing, you know, pushing lawnmowers and not having enough money to buy weed eater string. It's the same problem. So I learned a lot about that, but it wasn't, I wasn't passionate about it. I knew I could have the conversation because I knew I knew as a mechanic at the time for seven years, I knew the ins and outs of any engine. I could look at it and tell you exactly what is going on with it. But but I wasn't passionate about that. I was still passionate about weather. And so I remember a good friend of mine from school. Well, he, actually, we were acquaintances in school. We knew we of each other. We, you know, we talked and hung out a little bit, but 
this is so silly how this all came to be, but they had a, a roofing contractor came and knocked on their door and said, hey, your your roof is damaged by hail. This is this is in 2000, 2009. And hey, your roof's damaged by hail. And, and my friend's a meteorologist. He goes, no, it's not. And he went and drew a hand-drawn map and told the roofer, here, go over in this neighborhood. That's where the hail hit. So the roofer went over there and came back to him the next day and paid him 500 bucks. He's like, what's this for? He's like, because you got me into the right neighborhood. So here's 500 bucks. Can you do it again? <laughs> so that's how weather fusion, that's how that's all started was a dude. Actually, you'll know this name. He's on Discovery Channel. It's uh, Reed Timmer. And um, and so, and he's a great meteorologist, uh, a PhD, one of the brightest characters I know, incredibly smart. And he also taught me everything I know about tornadoes and and all kinds of other things. But so we're talking one day and and they're like, yeah, you know, I think we can automate this. And and that goes into that background about understanding radar and other things. And so we got a team together of a bunch of misfits, if you will, that were all very good at specific things. And we started up Canopy or excuse me, uh, Weather Fusion from scratch, none of us knew how to run a real business uh, of, of that size or a data services company, but we had to go figure it out. And that was a real success story. We revolutionized the industry at the time. We took weather data that could get generic information to the county, maybe the zip code level. The first website we launched was livehailmap.com because it was the first time that real-time hail maps were ever available. And so that gets back to that marketing thing you were talking about, SEO and all these things. It's like, okay, how do we be different? Well, one, we're live, we're real-time. That was a huge differentiator. And two, being able to do that with accuracy that we measured and how we measured it is we went out and storm chased all across the country. And then we would go back and look at what the algorithm put out and it's like, man, that's pretty good. Or we need to adjust here. And we just did that over the course of about 18 months. And that's how we validated all that. So that was a differentiator was that it was actually accurate. So speed to market, first to market, this new thing, we leveraged SEO. So that was a huge thing that we wrote the website in a way that would give a description of the hail event and what got hit, how many structures got hit, all kinds of stuff, which was revolutionary at the time. So then Google became our best salesperson and we had customers flying in faster than we knew what to even do. We didn't even know what a roofing company was other than the guy that came and paid Reed, I think it was 500 bucks. And so that really just took off and then that came into next products. And then we started to really understand that market. And then that turned over into insurance because the contractors were using us to validate that, yes, there was a real storm date and it's not the public storm report that's 10 miles away. It's right here at this house. So then roofing or so the adjusters started using it, then they got us in. And then we we had to learn enterprise sales, which is totally different than software as a service scenario. And it kind of just a lot of life lessons and, and just business lessons in that process. We made a decision. We had a fork in the road to either go find funding, which back in the 12 years ago now, funding was not as big and as easy as it is today. You had to really know people that were in that network to really get in. Now they've got like an entire enterprise ecosystem set up in California and other cities to like cater to those specific things. Hello, the bank that just collapsed. <laughs> so we made a decision that it was best for us to keep 
on our path without funding. There's pros and cons to that, that every entrepreneur needs to weigh. And we decided for a few reasons. One, we needed the freedom and flexibility to learn from and learn fast about our mistakes. And when you take on money, your agenda is not your agenda anymore. It's the money's, whoever's backing that, it becomes their agenda. So we were young. We wanted to really understand how to how to operate a business and build product and deliver product and all those really exciting things. And we did it completely cash flowed from our from our customers, no debt. It was 100% funded by our customers and sales. It's something I'm really proud about. And we eventually in 2014, oh, we had a law a federal lawsuit we had to fight for IP issues in in the middle of all this. We had a because of our success we had a we- another weather company start hacking into our servers and stealing data and then trying to use that to learn how we're doing or doing all these algorithms. And then they went and, and tried to make a replica algorithm off of using our stolen data as their verification. So that was a federal lawsuit that settled. And, and I mean, that, like these are the things you have to deal with in the entrepreneurship. And what a freaking pain in the ass that was and just a complete distraction from just business at hand and and trying to push the industry into a better and better place. So it was a complete distraction. But those are the challenges that you just get hit with. And you get hit with those kind of things. That was a big one. But you got to figure out as an entrepreneur how to just rebound. Like you can't fold in. And and that company had way more money and resources than we did. You just got to keep pushing and you got to keep grinding and you know, sometimes it might be too, still today, like this morning, I was up till 2, 2.30 in the morning just working on stuff. And after the family went to bed and, and you just have to do that in entrepreneurship and you trade that nine to five is nice at times, but man, the freedom of being able to just take off and run like this, this winter, this summer, I'm going to uh, Poland and Austria with my wife, uh, who's a professional musician and we're, we're out for whatever that is, a couple months, and you don't get that freedom as an employee per se. You can in some certain circumstances, but that's the trade-off you get as an entrepreneurship. And that was a little bit of a digression, but... Yeah, here's a question. I mean, you, you talked about the launch, but let's say in the construction industry, the building material space, what are the various weather value propositions that are interesting for companies, whether they're utilizing it or not? There's a couple things that are shifting in the industry with regard to weather. A few of them are significant shifts. One is the level of friction between the three parties. You've got the homeowner or the building owner, the, the policyholder. You got an insurance carrier who's got responsibilities to cover for weather damage. And then you've got the contractor who is trying to do the best job that they can do for that homeowner while still turning a profit for their business. And so these three opposing, you know, the the consumer, the contractor, and the carrier, if you break that down, there's friction that is mounting between those three. And so if you're using weather data, it's got to be defensible and defendable and consistent. And it's got to be the truth. It can't be slanted. You can't use something that favors one or the other. I just want to set that stage a little bit is that there's there's a something happening. The other thing that's happening from a technology side is every decade or so, 
if you look at like, and this goes back to like the 80s, 90s. So if you look at like 80s, 90s, you had the invention of cable news networks that started to, to really embellish and tell the narrative of, oh, there's a hurricane that's going to hit, blah, blah, blah. It was all word of mouth, right? The next decade, the internet became to be the weather service started to produce weather data, publicly available public storm reports, for example. And that got you from word of mouth to a, a sense of level of understanding a little bit more. But it still didn't really get to the core problems that the industry is solving. But it did start the friction. That's when storm chasing, I remember there's a couple of big contractors that really started storm chasing using public reports back in 2004, 5, 6. And those companies are millions and millions, multi-million dollar companies today. And then you look at the next generation, the 2010s, which is when we launched Weather Fusion and got address or um, street level hail maps, hit maximum hail size maps available. And then the new decade, which is the 2020s, there's a next iteration in that technology. And we're even seeing this like we started the conversation about how things are changing so fast. And I mentioned ChatGDP and a few other things, right? That same thing's happening on the technology side. There's this next level of, of jump in technology from a weather perspective. So Canopy Weather, we sold Weather Fusion to close that cycle. We, we sold Weather Fusion to CoreLogic in 2014, worked there for a little bit, learned, learned real quick I was not a corporate employee, not the way my brain was wired. And so I became a roofing contractor. One of the core reasons that I became a roofing contractor is so many times from a weather perspective, we'd have a, a hail footprint, two, two and a half inch hail, and then there would be a denied insurance claim right in the core of the middle of that. And it's like, well, but the hail was two and a half or three inches or even four inches. Why is it being denied? And we would look through the images either with a carrier or with a contractor or, or whoever, we didn't care who, but we were looking at the images and sure enough, the roof didn't have that much substantial damage from hail. So then I, I knew over the course of that time of, of doing those uh, investigations that it's not maximum hail size, which is what we invented in, in the 2010s. There's something else here. There's the building elements. So at Canopy, Canopy Weather, we are focused on uh, perils that damage the roof. That's, that's what we focus on. So it's kind of in the name, Canopy, a roof, Canopy Weather. And really what I've pulled from is those past learnings. I mean, even all the way back to that, uh, my days in, as an undergrad and that rain measurement stuff. What is really going on from that weather and building envelope perspective? But you've got to be able to package that in a way to understand what the real pain point is of these three competing uh, components, the contractor, the carrier, and the consumer. And really what that is, is, is the roof damaged? Like, that's it. Is the roof damaged? So we have invented a process at Canopy that can now determine what's the probability of an individual roof being damaged by 10 visible hail hits per square. Just for some background on that, a square is a 10 foot by 10 foot arbitrary space on a roof. 10 visible hail hits per square is just a rule of thumb that the insurance industry uses for a ballpark. Are we gonna do a full replacement of this roof? Some carriers accept you know, six, seven, eight, nine hits a square. But our data is geared to say, what is the probability that this roof is totaled by hail? 
and that becomes so much more complicated than maximum hail size. So it's the age of roof, it's the material type, uh, the weather, the hail size, the the volume of hail. Like if you have one four inch hailstone that hits the roof, is the roof totaled? Probably not. How does the probability help? Is that to set the premiums or like, you know, the prioritization of inspection? Like what, what is the, what's the value there? Yeah, the, the value we're hopeful on is reducing the friction between those three vendors, contractor, carrier, consumer. So from a claims perspective, if you're a homeowner filing a claim and we're at like 96% probability of the roof is compromised. Why are you waiting for an adjuster to be scheduled three weeks later? You got to take off work because the adjuster's got to come out and get on the roof. The adjuster fell off the roof. <laughs> that happens. I've fallen off the roof. So it happens to everybody in the business. And the um, point there is that why are we sending out an adjuster to look at these roofs and get on these roofs? The data proves that you don't need to do that anymore. And so that's one of the things that that's going to start. And we already have a couple of carriers that uh, insurance carriers that have rolled that out where they, for those claims are just going to fast track them and, and uh, you know, they'll grab their measurement report from Eagle view and, you know, they know what the material is and they know, you know, the, the measurements from Eagle view so they can come up with a, you know, a pretty good ballpark price for that homeowner and cut a check. So that's a big piece that's that's coming is the speed of just getting paid, reducing all the, the red tape. A second thing that is coming in that is to the contractor, we've got, we're doing some alpha testing on some things right now with a very few select contractors. It's the same thing. If they're spending all their money and resources marketing to an entire zip code, why are you doing that? It's the one house over here that's damaged. Just go to the one house that's damaged. Just quit, quit spending your time spinning up a bunch of claims on these other, this neighboritis stuff where the roof is not damaged. That creates massive friction. It's a waste of your time because you're probably not going to get it bought from a carrier anyway without a major fight. The homeowner files a claim when they probably, maybe possibly shouldn't file a claim. You know, so that's a ding on them it's just messy, right? So just go after the ones that, that are actually damaged and going to get paid, like make, make life a little easier for you. And then the, ultimately, I think that the other thing that that starts to do is reduce the amount of insurance payments. It makes it truthful, right? Like it's, there's a bunch of claims being filed. I see a lot of industry data. We do a lot of case studies with insurance carriers. And I'd say, on par, about 30% of hail claims are suspect at best. I would say that they're probably a little bit of the contractor pushing a little bit too far on pushing for those claims. I mean, that's what the data says. So if you can eliminate that, right, that 30% of claims just by using data and, and that aren't getting paid for anyway, those are denied claims and rightfully so. That reduces cost for the carrier, reduces time for the contractor, saves space for the contractor with the homeowner, which is going to be their future customer. Another area that we do a lot of work with with contractors is whenever another storm hits, like we have their book of business of, of their past jobs. Let's monitor that. And that way we can know and we can tell you like, hey, this customer, you know, Johnny over here just got hit again. 
go work that customer before your competitor steals them. So we've got a lot of that uh, going on. Uh, that's going on through a partnership with a company called Hail Trace that has got a phenomenal brand and, and leadership in, in the contractor space. The other thing that's happening in all of this is deductibles are becoming out of control. Dallas Fort Worth has deductibles that are three and four, uh, they're about to introduce a 5% deductible if it's not already been introduced, but they're at 3% deductibles right now. Okay. These are half million dollar homes. It's a $15,000 deductible for a roof that costs 18,000. The homeowner is self-insured for hail. That's a problem. Last time I checked on the numbers in the United States, I can't remember the exact number now. I'm going to quote a quote. That's not really a quote. It's ballpark like half of America doesn't have more than a month worth of cash in the bank that they can access. I don't remember the specifics right now, but it's somewhere in there. Go look it up. And like, let alone $18,000 for a, for a roof, right? And so that I think that that's one of the things that weather starts to bring over the next decade is a little bit more sanity through clarity and truth that gets the claims that shouldn't be filing claims processed faster gets the claims that should be filing claims processed faster. And we see some level of return to the norm and get these these premiums and these deductibles back in order because this is not sustainable. I mean, my my personal house has gone up almost 300% in five years on premium and the deductible has gone up by 100%. Yeah. In five years. Like it's not sustainable. And and so what's going to happen if the contractor industry doesn't get the tools that they need to, to be more responsible, which is weather data, they're going to push themselves out of a job because that person in Dallas that has now an $18,000 roof for her place, are they going to replace it? Or they're just going to wait two or three more hailstorms. They're going to wait two or three more hailstorms. And we're already seeing that in the data. February, Dallas-Fort Worth got hit. Big hailstorm, great hailstorm from a you know replacement perspective. The claims volumes are just trickling in. Now, part of that's seasonality. But the other part is between inflation and just, you know, I don't know about you, but my bank account doesn't get stretched nearly as far as it did 18 months ago. And... So between inflation hitting our population, deductibles hitting our population, am I going to file the claim where I'm, I'm going to be $15,000 out of pocket? Or am I just going to wait until I have an issue? I'm going to wait till I have an issue. And that's the thing that I, as a contractor, as a meteorologist, that is the component that I'm, I'm really advocating for and really hopeful that, that this next generation of data is no longer zip code level. It's no longer street level. It's address specific. And I'm hopeful that over the next 10 years, we put a dent in this and make this a better sustainable market because the market won't be here in some period of time in the future if this continues. That's what I'm passionate about right now. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Very comprehensive. I learned a ton. Matt, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, I enjoyed the conversation. I talked a lot, but hopefully that Give some good background for everybody. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.